Good morrow, dear listener, and welcome to this seasonal and festive edition of Weekend at Crombies. It's volume three, it's episode 12, and we're going to be discussing the film The Long Kiss Goodnight. Ah, yes, dear listener, it's the Christmas edition of Weekend at Crombies, and uh, we have a Christmassy film this evening. But before we get on to that, first of all, let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. James Evans Esquire, and everyone knows when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption. Thank you, James, and I'm Hugh. I should think whatever you're attempting to dislodge is either gone for good or there to stay. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, and uh, as befitting the Christmas uh, season, the film for discussion for Volume 3 and Episode 12 of Weekend at Crombies is The Long Kiss Goodnight. Maybe not observably uh, when you think about it, a Christmas film, uh, in the pantheon of Christmas films, like It's a Wonderful Life or Santa Claus the Movie, which, as tradition befits, should be watched in January. Um, but but, but, but it's, it again, is... it's a lot more Christmassy than, say, like Die Hard, which is known as oh, that great yeah. action hero. This is, this has got Christmas right all the way through it. Well, as I, yeah, it is, it is demonstrably a Christmas film, without a shadow of a doubt. There is no debate, unlike Die Hard, which you can, you can argue either way. Um, Says the main so, character in the Santa outfit and the first scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this was Hugh's choice for, for, for this month's Christmas edition. Um, and so, Hugh, should we, should we crack on? Let's begin. Okay. Okay. Uh, our protagonist, as we mentioned, is uh, is Samantha Kane, uh, played by Gina Davis, who uh, quickly describes um, over a voiceover that she uh, has, is an amnesiac. She only knows the last eight years of her life. She was discovered uh, without a memory um, and pregnant with her young young daughter, and has since then has carved a life for herself as a school teacher uh, in a sort of small town, I think, in Pittsburgh. Um, she's in the PTA, in isn't she? she? In Pennsylvania. She's in the PTA. She's in the Pennsylvania. Uh, she's got a young child and a, and a steady bow, and uh, she's you know a pillar of the community. And it's all it's all very um, very picket fence. And the, you know it's, it, it looks like the place in Groundhog Day. Everyone is just very friendly and cheerful, and and sweet and nice. And as is as is Samantha Kane. Indeed, she's a she just seems to be again a, a perfectly harmless, well mannered, uh, and pleasant person. Um, it starts. It starts. It starts with uh, Samantha Kane on a Christmas float, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Um, and I guess, but the first uh, first hiccup in this is when uh, Samantha Kane is is driving a drunken neighbour home uh, when they run over a deer and the deer kicks her in the head, um, which which triggers something in her. Um, we might say that the uh, the deer is is then mortally wounded and Samantha Kane uh, snaps its neck, which is the first sign that she has skills that she may not be aware of. Um, yeah. But uh, the uh, she she's. Uh, as, as she's uh, home and recovering, she's chopping a carrot rather badly until all of a sudden these skills kick in and her knife work is beyond reproach. She's, she's chop, 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 chopping and she's going, I'm a chef, I'm a chef. And actually <laughs> the music is playing and it's really cheerful because the, the little daughter's running around her and her boyfriend's running around throwing scallions and uh, turn tomatoes out and they go, I'm a chef, I'm a chef. And then she does this sort of deadly flick with this enormous knife as she spears an onion in the wall. Yeah. And they're like, okay, you're, you're a chef with a good aim with a knife. Yeah, it's what chefs do. Chefs do that. Chefs do that. Uh, I bet Gordon Ramsay would do that if he had the arm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, 
However, the, the next sign that all is not well is when uh, uh, her local carol singers are hijacked by a nutcase with a shotgun who uh, who attacks uh, Samantha uh, quite viciously with, again, mm. a rocket launcher with a shotgun and, and blasts her house to pieces um, before laying on quite a, a vicious beating uh, before she manages to get the better of him with a, a cream pie um, and then snaps his neck as if he were a deer. Yeah, uh, quite, quite, she snaps his neck quite um, sensually. I found she enjoyed it, shall we say? That, that she, was part, she, part she licks the cream pie and blood off her fingers. Um, <laughs> yes, she does. So this this particular kind of assassin in in a in a uh, one of many coincidences in the film yeah. has seen Samantha Kane on the Christmas float in her local um, in her local town. Pageant. Yeah. A pageant, yeah, on like CNN news <laughs> uh, from his prison cell. Um, and it happens at exactly the point at which she has a car crash and then some semblance of memory comes back. So these two things coalesce at once. He escapes from prison yes. to seek her down and then uh, attacks the house as she then realises she has these remarkable skills. But where yes. have they come from? This gentleman is called One-Eyed Jack. For he only has one eye and actually is, is shouting at Samantha, I want my eye back. So we can uh, imagine that's why he's got grievance with her. Um, yeah. I will say, even, even, yeah, even as... Um, sort of mumsy Samantha. She handles her quite well because uh, she managed to pick her daughter up and hoist her through a hole in the wall under yeah. a treehouse. We'll, uh, we'll come on to that very scene later yeah. on in the analysis because, yeah. yeah, we'll come on to that. But anyway, so have, having worked out that um, possibly crowds in the past are out to get her, this coincides again with um, one of the private detectives she's hired to... to, to um, to find out about her past, uh, whose name is Mitch Hennessy, running a very low-budget be- uh, private detective agency, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Um, yeah. At well, again, not the peak of his career, but certainly I'd say the peak of his Samuel L. Jacksonness. He is a yeah, certainly yeah. So it, it, this would have been post Pulp Fiction, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. So he, you know, he was riding a crest, and he, I think here he was pl- he was hired to play Samuel L. Jackson, but yeah. like a hyped up Samuel L. Jackson, and and plays him very well. He's a he's oh, a, he does. He's yeah. he's smart talking. He's wise cracking. He's a he's cool as a cucumber. Um, and so he uh, he is now discovered again through some detective work that um they found an old an old suitcase that belonged to Samantha Kane, uh, full of various memories and addresses and what have you. So the two of them take an immediate road trip. Um to try and uh, discover uh, who her past was. They find well, their big leads are there's a there's a phone number to a, an Uncle Max and there's a, a, a postcard saying she's about to be engaged to someone. So those are the two leads they have as they go off on their travels. Um, at which point, again, they're, they're night in the in the hotel room as uh, Samantha's looking at this suitcase, finds a disassembled assault rifle in there, um, <laughs> which, again, her, her muscle memory kicks in and she finds herself reassembling it um, and accidentally nearly shooting Mitch as he knocks yeah. on the door. Um, I suppose we should mention at this point she's she's not she's having these kind of flashbacks um, where she sees herself in the mirror, but herself as a much fiercer, blonder, um, peroxide uh, blonde. Pero- she's peroxide blonde because um, I guess Samantha Kane has long brown curly hair. Um, this um, mirror figure has peroxide blonde hair, uh, very heavy eyeshadow, and mostly blood ripped up in her face and yeah. um, smokes a lot. Yes, and it looks like, again, some kind of um, alter ego from hell. Yeah. Um, so in the middle of these flashbacks, uh, she nearly shoots Mitch, um, who then tries to uh, take off, but uh, she can, he's, his, he gets a, a change of heart um, and, uh, and decides to take her on her way. I suppose at this point also, um, the other agents are starting to, to turn, the wheels are starting to turn, um, because uh, the CIA um, director, Dr. Director Perkins, 
um, who shares the same name as Samantha's little girl's teddy bear, which, uh, which was yeah. a, a, a nice connection. He said, mummy named my teddy bear. His name is Mr. Perkins. Um, so Mr. Perkins is, is getting told off by the president because apparently he's lost one of his, um, you know, insane agents, Samantha Kane, um, or Charlie Baltimore, I think is now. She's the, um, known, yeah. She's, Charlie Baltimore was the assassin and she went missing eight years ago and she's now resurfaced. So the, the CIA are trying to track her down. Um, as are some other bad characters who she was initially um, tracked down to uh, to kill. Such a, this is one-eyed Jack's associate, some, uh, some ne'er-do-wells. Uh, I've, I've learned that Samantha Kane or Charlie Baltimore is again at large. Um, including, I suppose, we're introduced to uh, the main antagonist of the piece, uh, who is a uh, sort of an, um, an bad guy hitman uh, with the incredibly uninspiring name of Timothy. Um, <laughs> or Daedalus. Oh, no, he's no, not no, Daedalus. Daedalus, no, Daedalus, is, Daedalus is the right, boss. Yeah. Timothy yeah. is the force. Timothy is in the force. Timothy is the equivalent of the the giant blonde German in Die Hard. Yeah. He's the 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 alter ego, and his name's Timothy. Um, I will say, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll come on to the analysis. But the the actor playing him doesn't do him many favors anyway. It's not like wow, he really turned Timothy around there. He made Timothy <laughs> name fit. So on they go. They 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 so calling up these numbers they find in the in the phone book. They they contact. Um, Dr. Waldman, um, played rather winningly by Brian Cox. Um, yeah, that's not the northern physicist. No, that's the uh, character. Actor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who, again, I think was you know, was very recently into America at this moment, but but was playing these kind of roles as he's you know, made a career out of playing now in America. These kind of... Oh, yeah. The first, the first Hannibal Lecter. Indeed, uh, Manhunter. But that, that was actually he was doing lead roles or whatever. This was when he was... Um, He's, he kind of he grew a beard and then started doing these kind of gruff, either yeah. CIA or paramilitary or um, science, science, military science type person. Yeah, he's again he and Brian Cox again he's very good in this actually. He's, um, yeah. he's he managed to snap out all the the correct gruff lines. So he immediately recognizes Samantha Kane when she calls him and says, "Your name's Charlie Baltimore. You you're not Samantha Kane. We've got to meet." So they decide to meet in a in a train station, um, but the bad guys are already closing in on them. So um, a shootout ensues, which carnage, absolute carnage. It's not a couple of bang bangs. Everyone's for cover. People are dropping dead as the as the yeah. bullets fly. Yeah. Um, but uh, which again, I think again, it's almost like they were doing a homage to the Brian De Palma um, railway yeah. scene uh, in in um, Untouchables. But it's far bloodier because it's this sort of automatic weapons and just random people are dying. But that you know, you get used to it in this film. Um, you do. There is there's a, there's a lot of uh, similar scenes where I mean, you just don't want to be a random passerby in a Rennie Harlan <laughs> film, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, but then the two managed to escape again through an action sequence of jumping through a window and then machine gunning some ice so they soften their landing. But it's uh, Samantha Kane who's taking the initiative in this. She's the one that, that actually leads their escape and does all the shooting. So Samuel Jackson is reeling a little bit, at which point um, Dr. Waldman arrives and tells him to bundle in the car and kind of come with me if you want to live. So as they're driving away, he fills in all the blanks that um, Sir Samantha Kane was just the cover story of Charlie Baltimore, who was a, an agent for the CIA, uh, the hired assassin, and... Um, she gets she went missing eight years ago because she got wounded in the head and bought her own cover story. Um, mm. And so that that was so that's pretty much it. Now he's basically saying, yeah, the uh, you've you've uh, you're in danger. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think he says stick with me or whatever. Um, but doesn't that, doesn't last long though, does it? Doesn't last long because they don't trust him. <laughs> they, they <immediately laughs> as soon as the car stops, they immediately overpower Waldman and escape. Um, so at which drive... point, at which point, Samuel L. Jackson is wearing the most ridiculous kind of golfing outfit. No, I thought well, this is the thing because they've this this work all connects. Because they've jumped in the water, they they have to change clothes. And I'm assuming Mitch Hennessy then puts on um, 
some spare clothes from uh, Dr. Waldman because it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's completely contrary to his other style. It's this, this kind of turtleneck and, uh, and fluffy. It fits fluffy. him perfectly. It does fit him perfectly. I will say Brian Cox is not the same build as Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Not at all. But, so, yeah. Mind you, it's one of those things, though, isn't it? When, when, when you buy a suit and you put on a bit of weight, you will keep wearing that suit until it literally <laughs> garrots you. <laughs> yes, I can testify to that. Uh, yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so they, they, they don't trust Walmans. They overpower him and then make their escape to try and find the, uh, the man that um, Charlie Baltimore was engaged to in her postcard. And uh, they discover um, they drive up to his house and he's, uh, this is uh, Luke as he's chopping wood. Um, and they're going to say, oh, hi, Luke. And he looks a bit shocked to see them. I, I think I used to marry, was going to be married to you. Um, Luke, I should say, is played by David Morse. Who, um, yeah. which oh, is yeah. First... We can look on his favourite. <laughs> it's your first clue, because David Morse is always a wrong'un. Um... Yeah, he is. He was a wrong'un in, um, he was a wrong'un in Dancing in the Dark, wasn't he? He's a wrong'un in 12 Monkeys. He was a, he's a wrong'un in The Rock. He's a wrong'un. And it's a, yeah. So um, you, it's no surprise. In fact, he is not the person she was engaged to marry. Engaged is the co-word for I found my target and I'm going to kill him. It turns out yeah. that Luke is Daedalus, some kind of um, high-grade weaponsmith who um, who has Timothy as his henchman and is planning a great big heist um, that we don't know what's going to happen of. But he's rather surprised to find that the assassin has turned up on his doorstep. Um so Nathan, then uh, Dr. Waldman turns up again, having followed Samuel Jackson, because he uh, he finds, and this is quite a nice detail, he find, they've written down the address of where they're going, and he left the address in a notebook in his coat pocket that Waldman found. Um, yeah, alongside, <laughs> it made me it, laugh out loud. This it was between um, a, a picture of a topless bar and, an, and, and a diagram of what he assumed was a man's penis, yes. which in fact was a duck. Um, so <laughs> it's quite, it's quite just, there's a, it's, a nice, it's a nice character note that uh, Mitch Hennessy draws phallic-shaped ducks as <laughs> It's a kind of doodling exercise. Yeah, so he goes, uh, this is the point where he he, uh, he says, there may be many reasons not to kill you, but among them is not that you'll be missed by NASA. I found the address in your code here between the address of a topless bar and the picture of what looks like a man's penis. And then Mitch says, that's a duck, not a dick. <laughs> but the best part is, is then Waldman then looks at it as well. He's like, he's got a gun to his head, but he takes the time to inspect the drawing to make sure what he's seen. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. So the two of them put two and two together and realise that uh, Charlie is in fact chatting away to her target. So they, they'll run like mad things saying, Charlie, stop, stop, stop. But then the bad guys show up from everywhere. Cars, helicopters, the lot. Um, and they're all captured. At which point Brian Cox is, is executed, which is very sad because I was thoroughly enjoying his character. And I suspect, yeah. had, had they not... yeah. Had he had he um, been played by a different person, then Doctor Waldman might have been an appropriate moment for him to leave the story. But I could have watched a whole prequel of, of Brian Cox uh, as the, the handler of Gina Davis's assassins. Well, I thought it might I thought it might become a, a, a film with where there were three main kind of protagonists, as it were. But it, no, it didn't. Yeah, because again, he, again, when he's, he again has like three scenes, but the three scenes yeah. are very memorable. Like I said, the line about whatever's whatever's. Um, whatever is there to stay or gone for good is when he's complaining to his yes. landlady or someone about a little lap dog who's been licking his bum for three hours <laughs> he's just saying he's been licking his bum for three hours whatever he's got is worth no more than an hour it's funny as well because it's the first time you see him that yeah. scene is 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 the opening scene with him and it really sets the scene and the opening phrase is he says your dog it and my appetite are mutually exclusive yeah. It's, it's, he's set up wonderfully, but dead he is. Um, however, he didn't die in vain because he always keeps—he's already got 
had two guns taken off him, but he's got a third one uh, packed down his trousers. This is again, this is why he was such a great coward because he was explaining all this as they were escaping from the bad guys, saying, I've got one hip, one shoulder gun, and one right here, right next to Mr. Wally. So why is most pat down since an enemy agent will not feel up a man's groin? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> At which point Samuel Jackson just bug eyed with this guy who's producing pistols from nowhere. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so, um, so poor, poor Mitch is getting trapped in a basement, having been tortured. Um, and uh, and Charlie Baltimore is, or Samantha Kane, is now tied to a wheel, um, still not fully cognizant of what the, who she used to be. So she's basically a frightened woman tied to a wheel as uh, as Daedalus is dropping her into icy water, um, and threatening to torture her. Um, but sort of on her second dunking, she uh, she tends to um, she kind of comes to herself and snarls at him that she's not finished yet. At which point she goes back in, retrieves the gun from. Uh, Dr. Waldman, who was already submerged and, and dead in the water, and she managed to pop up, kill Daedalus, um, and free herself. Again, she then murders all the guards and frees Hennessy as well. Um, so it's kind of who's been tortured and, and is naked in like a, yeah. a cell underneath the floorboards. Yeah, quite horrific. Yeah, it was quite horrific. Although, we'll say again, this is um, it probably goes on the style. It's it's quite stylized the way some things are done for what is basically a run of the mill action sequence. Um, you don't yes. see you don't see kind of Charlie Baltimore go out and kicking ass and gets them. You basically see Hennessy looking up through the, the light string through the slatted yeah, floorboards as the violence goes on around him. And it's it's yeah. there's again Harlan does a couple of, of good ways of presenting information like that. There's a yeah. there's like yeah. scenes when the, the characters are recovering, like pouring themselves vodka tonics and you just like get an overhead of the ice falling into the glass and the slosh yeah. slosh slosh. So it's not it's it's things they uh, it takes time to do things more than it needs to. It's quite unharlan like in yes. the sophistication of some of the directorial choices in this, given yes. some of the other films that he's made. But yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but we'll put this, we're now at the hour mark, and um, Charlie Baltimore has now discovered who she is. Uh, they've killed Daedalus, who we thought was the big villain. So it's almost like, okay, we're done. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but the story continues, as the story must. <laughs> so uh, as the two are recuperating in their hotel rooms, um, Samantha Kane, or Junior Davis's character now, um, kind of washes off all the blood and everything from her um, and then proceeds to dye her hair peroxide and then give herself um, what has to be is, is a pretty good haircut given she has a steamy hotel mirror and a pair of scissors to do it with. Yeah, that's, it's that's a, a good point actually. I hadn't realised that, but you're right, aren't you? As, as someone who's lived under lockdown hair for the last year, <laughs> the, it's probably the, the most improbable feature of the film is that with just that, she gives herself a really nice bob. She's straightened it out. It used to be brown and curly. Now it's smooth and peroxide and and and, uh, and, and sharp. And it's like, wow, that's a... Yeah. That's a CIA skill that clearly they drilled into it is how to adjust your hair. So, um, but this is the thing. Um, Samantha Kane is is comprehensively changing her appearance. She's no longer she's she puts on again some very heavy makeup. She um she changes her outfit. She's changed her attitude, um, and she is now kind of imbued the character of Charlie the Spy, as she calls herself. <laughs> At which point, Sam Jackson is a bit bemused by the whole thing, um, and and he's hurting as well, isn't he? He's he's, he's tending be, be, to his wounds. Yeah. Um, and um, she comes in and, and <laughs> she flashes, she flashes in, then whips off the plaster on his um, on his major wound. Yeah, um, which is a distraction yeah. from the pain. Which she mentions was how Harold Robbins wrote in his book on deflowering virgins, which again gets the the. Uh, he said he bite, they bite in the earlobe to distract from the pain. Did you ever try that? And Mitch comes back with no, I just sock him and then join yell pop goes the weasel. <laughs> There's a lot of good lines in this film. We should again, we, we should mention this is written by Shane Black. Um, yeah. And if you didn't know it was by Shane Black, you'd know it's by Shane Black because yeah, it's, 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 I, I DNA agree. is just completely through the movie. Yeah. Um, and again, we'll come on to that because I think Shane Black is a bit hit and miss in, in films and he's, he's, he's a Marmite character, but um, 
yeah, the, the, the script here is is um, hyper Shane Black in the same way that it's hyper Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so again, they uh, they they um, so Charlie now is again she's she's completely spiced. She's again a, a little bit um, cross that she had to live her last past eight years as a school teacher, and she kind of is not too happy that she has a daughter who is getting very dependent on her. Um, but she's she's trying to come back into the CIA. But she manages to ascertain that the CIA are also trying to kill her because they send three assassins together. Again, Charlie is more than a match for them and kills all three of them. Um, so now she decides that the CIA are trying to kill her as well. So she'd better get her safety deposit box money and hightail out of the country with her false passports. Uh, the safety deposit key happens to be around the neck of the teddy bear, Mr. Perkins, which is in the possession of her young child. So she's got to go back to uh, to the t- to town to get it. Yeah. Um, at which point she's now returning to town um, where she fetches the the keys from Mr. Perkins by breaking into her own house. And again, she sees her daughter from a long way away in the, the school choir or whatever, at which point she has, I think, a first pang of, of maternal feelings. Yeah. Um, it's not completely gone, has it? So it hasn't completely gone. still in there. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's quite a shock if you were um, someone who didn't realise they had a kid to wake up to the fact eight years later they had a kid depending on them. Because she does yell, I didn't choose to have a kid, that was Samantha. Um, yeah. Yeah. Although again, Sam Jackson is, is is kind of needling away, saying, "You know, are you sure that Samantha was a cover story? It wasn't just you know a different version of yourself, yeah. um, which is probably a bit more likely." But, um, but yes, on top of this, um, the bad guys have not given up. Actually, some of the bad guys force them their way back into the plot because, uh, despite having their own scheme going on, um, they uh, they decide that. Um, Charlie Baltimore is too much of a liability. She could know about their scheme, so she must be dealt with. So Timothy, who's now, I guess, in charge of the bad guys, um, kidnaps uh, her daughter and mm-hmm. and carries her off. Uh, and then this leads this leads, I think, to the most preposterous action sequence in a film full of preposterous action sequences, where she goes, she skates across <laughs> the, the the local frozen lake. It's absolutely insane. Well, the way they've done it is that she does that to to increase speed. But I can't imagine the time it would take to remove your boots, lace up skates, and, yeah. and go after them. It would be quicker than just going round the pavement. Yeah, exactly. She, but, yeah, so she skates across the lake to get to the other side of the lake yeah. quickly and head off the the villains in their cars. Whereas I just think, yeah, run around the side of it. As you say, by the time you've taken them off, put your skates on. Yeah. I mean, has she skated in eight years? Takes a bit of time. I imagine so. She's no. The Samantha Kane lived in a frozen place. Again, there's a whole scene where she, the whole scene where she bullies her daughter. We haven't even mentioned that. When when the 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 Charlie Baltimore persona is asserting itself, um, there's a scene where her daughter falls over on the ice and fractures her wrist. Right. And and Samantha Kane um, suddenly goes very dark and is not being soft mumsy and just grabs saying, "Skate over the ice." Do I? Am I understood? which but funny if we never actually see if the daughter makes it over the ice or not which maybe was a director's choice saying that you know <laughs> she wouldn't want to reinforce the fact that just being mean to your kids makes them better ice skaters yeah yeah um, but again in the next scene samantha is horrified that she did that again again that's that's an, an earlier hint that, that charlie baltimore is in there somewhere but yeah she skates over the ice and, and neatly executes all the guys chasing her and so they're off again so they've kidnapped the kid um at which point there's a bit of to and fro where they manage to, you know, the, she gets the call saying, I've got your kid. Interestingly, um, Charlie Baltimore doesn't even flinch when you've got your kid. She immediately acquiesces. So there's no, no no case of, so what, I don't care. She clearly cares enough that Timothy's got the kid and is threatening her life. So they manage to track down where Timothy is. Um, it sounds awful calling him. <laughs> I wish, wish the team had a better name than Team Timothy. But they, uh, <laughs> they, they, they track down where Timothy is, which is near Niagara Falls, because this is where their plan is taking place mm. um, in association with the, the CIA director Perkins. Um, 
who I will say is, is so they are in cahoots with each other. The bad guys, Timothy and Daedalus, were planning something with Perkins, um, which uh, <laughs> again, I've got for another line. Perkins says if he's found out, he's going to be grabbing his ankles on the White House lawn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because it, 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 we can reveal their plot now. It turns out, and I should point out, this film was made in 1996. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. I, when yeah. when this when this line came out, I was like, my my jaw hit the floor. There are two things that date this film that no other. The first one is when uh, Samantha Kane says, "I've got a portable phone. You can call me." <laughs> And the second one is the entire plot of the bad guys, where they think that the American public are not sufficiently attuned to the, the international threat. So they're going to have to pretend that Arab terror or Muslim terrorists are going to blow something up in America. Yeah. And what they do is that they, they use the they use the bombing of the World Trade Center in 93 in, in 93 as the example. <laughs> yes. And you just think, wow, that is paranoid um, conspiracy theorists. That's where they got it from. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's literally he, there. He goes, of course. Well, like they're basically they've got some random Arab guy who's already dead. They're going to put him yeah. in a car near the bomb site, and they're going to blow up a town in Niagara Falls uh, with this big trucker tanker truck that's full of full of explosives. And the, the director goes, yeah, of course, we'll blame it on the Muslims. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. that's just so much like the uh, the Back to the Future thing, where the Libyans are allowed to be the terrorists, like Libyan terrorists scooting around American war, blowing things up. That was alright. You could use terrorists. Terrorists weren't going to threaten America, were they? It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I know it's so prescient, almost. Oh, it's bizarre. So, so yeah, prescient notwithstanding. So that's the plan. Basically, they're gonna, they're gonna, the, the CIA is working with with random blowing up bad guys to explode a town, like kill four thousand people in America, um, and therefore that will give the CIA more funding because they they're gonna respond to this threat. Um, and uh, so Samantha K or Charlie manages to fight her way into the compound. Um, but she and Mitch are quickly captured, um, although they do manage to to, to rescue uh, young Caitlin and her dolly um, before they've done so. Um, and and basically, so Charlie and uh, Caitlin are put in a, a, an ice box so they can freeze to death of hypothermia and then be dumped in the woods near her home. So she'll be written off as a nutcase, uh, not realizing, of course, that uh, before she was captured, Charlie filled the uh, the doll with kerosene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or gasoline um, because it was one of those wets herself dolls so the doll is now full of kerosene that she can use to <laughs> explode the door and get out of there um, so they're off again so they do uh, and it, like, d- despite I mean that explosion is extraordinary as well oh, yeah. um, it, it blows everything up and it, it blows Samuel L. Jackson about a hundred meters out of the building. Yeah, he's on the but third no, no. floor. He's on the third floor of the building. So then the explosion goes upwards, knocks him backwards. Yeah. <laughs> but like both him and Charlie Baltimore yeah. re- emerge totally unscathed. Yes. <laughs> uh, at which point, uh, much, much, much shootout involves. At which point, then Charlie yells to her daughter, "Get somewhere safe." Uh, this genius of a child, who will also not be missed by NASA, thinks the safest no. place to be is in the lockbox of the exploding tanker truck, uh, which is then driven off. Um, so uh, Samuel uh, Mitch um, makes a good go together, but again gets shot to pieces, and we think he's dead. At which point, Charlie has to take matters in her hands. She manages to, to grab the tanker and drive it to uh, a bridge uh, where it can be made safe. Uh, at which point, again, Timothy turns up on a helicopter, the normal bad guy riding shotgun in the helicopter. They have a big old fight. Um, uh, he's kind of thrown off the bridge, but not before he manages to, to slash her once with his knife. Uh, and I was at which point then Charlie manages to rescue her daughter, but then Charlie collapses. And I will think only um, 
no male action hero would be down from one stab. No matter where he was stabbed, he could be stabbed with a heart yeah. and still get up going. It's, it's, yeah. it's like she literally yeah. keels yeah. over and is is done for until her daughter beats her life out of saying, "Get up, get up, get up, mummy." Yeah. Um, and I was thinking that's a bit, it's a bit much. You know, Charlie hasn't you know, one slash. Doesn't matter where you get slashed. Action heroes have to be shot at least several times before they you know they they give up for dead. Um, but uh, but actually no, in, in indeed Timothy has survived his fall off the bridge because he gets back up on the helicopter and tries to fight. Um, at which point uh, Charlie and her young daughter are now on the bridge with the bomb about to go off. But uh, but Mitch has managed to sneak into the car that we're going to use to frame the terrorist uh, and drives off uh, off the bridge, rescues all of them. He has actually a very good very good um, appearance scene because. Uh, the, the bad guys have, have roadblocked the bridge and have brought along their truck with a car in the back of it for no reason. Um, and yeah. and Charlie's yelling on the CB radio, you know, anybody, can anybody help me? Can anybody help me? At which point you just get this shot of Mitch sitting up in the wheel with this enormous blues riff playing off because uh, Mitch is a character who likes to hum the blues a lot. <laughs> so yeah. It's just this huge... It's Manish Boy by... Oh, who's it by? Sorry? Johnny Hooker? Yes, that's it. Managed boy by John Lee Hooker. Yeah, yeah. Um, so off he goes. He uh, he he zooms to the rescue. They all pile in. Uh, Timothy is neatly dispatched um, when Charlie rides some Christmas lights up to level with the helicopter and machine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a neat way to actually. Again, they they I've I've raced through it. I haven't described it very well, but the the bits of where things are that they need to get is quite well placed. Like she's previously shot a guy in a helicopter who caught fire yes. and landed yes. the lights and slid down. And then five minutes later, she needs to get a machine gun and realizes there's one in his belt, but he's halfway up the lights. So she needs to be all the way up the lights. So there's a whole kind of cutting of the ropes and sliding up and down while she grabs a thing and shoots the thing. And it's all like, Oh, well, all these pieces fall into place. That's quite good. Um, so yes, tanker explodes, car escapes. Um, all the bad guys are subsequently blown up uh, and the heroes battered, but still alive, make it to the ending. Um, Whereupon, again, uh, Charlie is not only able to reunite with her family, she's able to get her big uh, suitcase full of cash out of the, the safety deposit box. Uh, the president is so grateful that they've exposed their their treacherous CIA director that he, uh, I guess, pardons her and uh, gives Mitch um, all kinds of benefits uh, of being the hero of the hour. So everyone ends up well. I will say, yeah. though, for, for a Christmas movie, it ends with uh, Charlie Baltimore clearly some time on because her hair's grown out and she's no longer wounded, driving in just the sunniest place in america <laughs> and it's after having a whole movie of ice and snow and, and mostly night it's such a scene change. it's like she's dropped into the Thelma louise set yeah I, it's yeah it, it, it's 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 uh, it, it's it's t- it's time on i mean the film actually very ends with um mitch hennessy being interviewed by larry king on the larry king show <laughs> yes. and um it, it's it's quite a funny ending but his um his estranged wife and son who she obviously thinks he's an absolute waste of space sees him on the larry king show who's who's and you know larry king basically introduces him as someone who has been directly um kind of thanked by the president of the united states and his his, his estranged wife and, and child are like what that's mitch and he ends it with uh he ends it with with a great line. He says, uh, uh, "Well, Larry, I'm always frank and earnest with women. In New York, I'm frank, and Chicago, I'm earnest." <laughs> Which is uh, that's the end of the film. Yeah, it's brilliant. So there we have it. That is the long kiss. Good night. Indeed, uh, indeed. So. And um, we, we've been we've been kissed well and good. Um, so uh, I don't quite know what that means, but there we go. I'm, I don't quite have the the, the witty repartee as Shane Black does. So it's I a tough act to follow, isn't it? We must have been quoting the film because what, how he's put it is so much better than how we could say. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, dear listener, please do take an opportunity to have a little mulled wine, uh, perhaps a sherry, uh, and uh, come back and we'll, we'll deep dive into the analysis of The Long Kiss Goodnight. Good morrow, dear listener. Welcome back to Weekend at Crombies, episode 3, volume 12, as we know. As I've said already many a time on this podcast, um, we're obviously discussing The Long Kiss Goodnight. Hugh has deftly walked us through the synopsis of the film, um, but it was Hugh's choice for this month, and I'm intrigued, Hugh. Um, why did you choose The Long Kiss Goodnight, and what do you think of some of the themes? Right, okay, so why I chose it. Um, firstly, I was given the Christmas slot, so I thought I'd better do something oh. Christmassy. And it turns out, other than the really famous ones, or the yeah. really bad ones, there's not a lot of movie, Christmas movies, Christmas themed movies, that will fit that weekend at Crombie's you know, niche of being you know, worth a look, and yet you know, performing pretty badly in the box office. Listen to you, I don't want to belabor the point here, but even when you don't have the Christmas slot... That doesn't stop you choosing Christmas films, does it? Well, if, no, if we're going to get nostalgic, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, 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 the stone upon which the temple of Weekend at Crombies was built was Santa Claus the movie, because I had seen it over Christmas and desperately needed someone to discuss it with. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I pitched the idea to you, and then we all of a sudden we had to talk it up in January. But I, was, I couldn't yeah. wait a year to talk about my thing I had in my head about Santa Claus the movie. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the way that you presented this to me when, when you sent me the email was... I've got an idea. Uh, would you like to, to you know, choose films and then talk about them? And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I like doing those things. <laughs> and then, and then, and then the you said... The was in. <laughs> yeah, no, then you said, then you said uh, if, I may speak, if I may be so bold, could I choose the first episode? <laughs> and it was like, yeah, sure, Santa Claus the movie. What? <laughs> <laughs> So yes, that was that was that was the the last time I chose a Christmas film. This time I chose it in December, as you you surrendered the December slot to me to avoid the repetition of that disaster. Um, and so again, there aren't that many films. They're either ones that are really really well known, or the ones that are actually yeah. really, like so you you got your diehards and you got your homelands or whatever, or you've got things that are actually you know just a bit pappy and pulpy. There's lots of Christmas themed movies. I've noticed them now. So I've got on Netflix and Disney Plus. They've got you know lots of things that have lots of say hot chocolate and snowflakes and people in warm furry jumpers, but they're not any good. Um, not no, even not. As, even not even as on a weekend at Crombie's any good. So this was one that. Um, I'd always liked it as a movie, and I said to I hadn't quite clocked it as a Christmas movie until, of course, you think about. It, I think, of course, it's a Christmas movie. It's it's around Christmas, it's the theme of family. It's the um, you know the uh, it's all jingle bells and everything like that. So that's why it fits the slot. And again, I had it in my mind to watch um, because it was a movie I must have seen quite close to its release. Um, it came out in '96, so I don't think I'd have seen it in the cinema, um, but I think I do remember seeing a trailer for it. Um, the trailer is very impressive. It's uh, so I remember again. I saw it on the uh, the DVD that uh, I watched it on, and the uh, the trailer is is out of this world in terms of excitement. It's, uh, it, it is impressive, but it has almost nothing to do with the actual film that you're watching. Absolutely nothing to oh, do. With it. No, nothing to do with it. It's it's totally. I mean, it's one of those. It's one of those uh, old, more old fashioned trailers with the extravagant voiceover. voiceover. But there are scenes in it. I read the film, but they're, they're, yeah, yeah, they're cut differently, though, aren't they? Samantha Kane was an ordinary woman. 
And again, the, the, especially because the scene where like when Samuel Jackson kicks the door down with a gun, and it's it's a minor throwing moment when he just enters the door. But here it's played like this is the climax of the entire movie. You know, what is Sam Jackson yeah. doing? Who is he shooting at? Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so um, so I remember seeing the trailer. I think I, I remember seeing the trailer um, like on a VHS thing. So I must have then subsequently watched the movie, and I really enjoyed it. In the kind of you know my early twenties, this was sweet spot. It was it was it was sharp dialogue and lots of action and some great characters in it too. So it, it kind of hit all the buttons of this is the kind of movie you'd enjoy. So I must have watched it and rewatched it a few times on a yeah. VHS, but then not seen it again for sort of 10, 15 years since that. So there was a long gap in it. So a long kiss goodnight. Um, so <laughs> so in, in the the time span of, say, an amnesiac, um, I had, had not seen the movie. So I was keen to revisit it and again, look at it with, with my older eyes and see what I thought of it then. So that was the, the basic reason for choosing it. Uh, and so good. and so again, to, to take on the themes of it, um, I would say my... My initial take on me watching it was what I enjoyed about it. I still really enjoyed that bit holds up really well. It is a very exciting movie with some great action sequences and some strong characters. Everything you want in an action movie is there. It's it's memorable. The set pieces are good. Um, the uh, the characters are strong. And again, um, <coughs> to, to dig more into it, the set pieces they're the Again, it sounds like they're proper action set pieces. They, uh, yeah, they are. Take they're over the top, full blown, real. Yeah, they're uh, practical yeah. effects. Yeah, you mm. mentioned the things actually happen. There's, there's, there's yeah. things like there's a bit of CGI where they do the absolutely blowing up things, but mostly people are being kicked when they're kicked and people are jumping when they're jumping and getting shot when they're shot. Wait, and when, more... there are, when there are general explosions, they are real buildings being blown up and there are stunt, stunt men and women flying out of windows, etc. Plus the, yeah, I think more than that, the way they they choreograph the the action sequences, you know, they're quite yeah. individual and quite unique. You could you could pluck an action sequence out of the film, and you'd be able to tell where it was in the plot because they 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 happen very specifically. And they, um, I'll give kudos to Rennie Harlan for this, or maybe his second unit was they're very well structured. You're given a good sense of the geography and the layout of each scene in it. And so when the characters are moving through, you know sort of where the limits are, where the boundaries are, where they've got to escape from, yeah. where they've got to get to, and that is not always done in movies normally it's you know, get lots of quick cuts and they're kicking to them punching and bang 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 and then you're moving on they thought well something happened that must have been exciting whereas yeah. this actually <coughs> sort of uh charlie baltimore's skating over the lake you know where she is you know where the cars are you know who they're chasing you know how long it takes for her to get there if they're jumping out of a building you'll know wh- where the exit points are and how they'll get through that and it's it's quite nicely laid out even again on a reviewing after so many years you're orientated quickly and therefore you know and you also know what the characters are capable of too which works out quite nicely as well well, I mean, I'd agree with that, and I think one of one of the big um, changes in certainly high, uh, big budget blockbusters of recent years, and I, I don't necessarily include, but this isn't an opportunity for me to bemoan the proliferation of superhero films. I apologise. I don't. I, I, this isn't the intention here, but I do think that superhero films do are, are guilty of this. Although a lot of big budget action films are, the editing and the direction of a lot of films nowadays with that bigger budget. I find it almost impossible to follow the story. Now, that may be because I'm stuck in the 90s or the 80s, where the editing was a little bit slower, I think. Not always, but I think in general, the editing was slower. The storytelling was a bit slower as well. And so you were able to kind of psychogeographically position yourself within the film, knowing where all of the characters are at a particular point in time, understanding how someone or something got from one place to another place, and that there's a linear narrative going on through it. And I do find that a lot of big, big budget films nowadays kind of 
eschew a lot of that for yeah. for spectacle. But I don't think that's a, like um, that. Don't think it's necessarily an improvement that you're you know too um, um, luddite to catch up with. I think it's a case of um, you know quick cuts are cheaper to make. You can film. You you don't have to choreograph something yeah. for as long yeah. if you're doing it in say forty cuts rather than four. Um, so the so the snap 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 that you get in a lot of fight scenes is because you can get it done quicker with more cameras. Um, if you want that, to know who the assistant director is, you yes, who we who we should thank for for uh, the long kiss goodnight. It's Kellen Gluck, whoever that is. Oh, well done, Kellen. <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to drop in a certain a Steven a Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> the way you built that. Up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> but you're, you're right about geography again. The um, you know, one of the most famous actually, it's like Seven Samurai. The um, Kurosawa yeah. spends a long time establishing the geography of the village for the yeah, flight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's important because then you can track where things are happening and where things are going. But so that, that was done very well. And I think you mentioned in the synopsis you wanted to come back to this, the initial fight between, you know, shotgun wielding one eyed Jack when he first takes on um, yeah. hapless Sam Kane in her house. Uh, um, it's it's you know, he comes on and it's 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 choreographed very well in that. You know, she he beats her yeah. aside. She's holding a bowl of M&Ms to give the choir singers. And then as she flees, he slips on them and fires a gun, which then allows him to reload and shoot a hole in the wall, which then causes her to throw a child out through the wall into the treehouse. And it, it goes on from yeah. there. Every, every point is has a, has a action reaction. And it's like a proper fight scene. It's not simply a, just someone randomly firing a shotgun in the house or just shot so quickly no. you can't quite yeah, happen. Yeah. You know it ends up with a guy dead because you beat him somehow. Yeah, and the, cam- the camera lingers enough for you to understand that this particular scene has been choreographed to the point where it's the start and the end point of this particular scene. Um, whereas if it was edited more quickly, I think all you would need to see is some kind of movement. Yeah. To, and, uh, you, you almost faked into believing that there's an action scene happening. Whereas this is, you know, there's a house here. This is the hallway. This is going to happen in the hallway. It will then move to the kitchen. And in the kitchen, three things will happen. And you'll see all of those three happen, things happen linearly and through the narrative. Yeah. And that, that's really effective. Yeah. Um, so, again, so one of the big themes in it, as, a, as an action movie, it stands up. You know, it kind of passes its first test as what needs to be is a rip-roaring mm-hmm. piece of entertainment. Um, and then secondly, and this, this did kind of dwell on me, is that um, I've picked this out in movies before, is when they work harder than they need to and they're better than they need to. I also bit nuns on the yeah. runners. It had more jokes than it needed to. And I think yeah. this script, and again, probably Shane Black gets a lot of kudos for this. This script works a lot harder than an action movie almost this caliber needs to, is that mm. no character will do anything without unless it can be a joke or a pun or a memorable line mm. they will you know if they open the door or they pick up a phone or they just you know light a cigarette it's done in a memorable way or with a good punchline or with a character building line um you may again yeah. mention you know brian cox he's he's in three scenes and all he needs to do is tell samantha kane who she really is and kind of get killed so he can provide an extra <laughs> gun to escape with and his first line is um alice that dog and my appetite are mutually incompatible <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, what what exactly. third level character begins with that line? It's um, yeah, and it's, it's not even it's not it's. But, but uh, what I like about that, and what, and what I like about the film as a consequence of that is that you're right. That that is literally the very first time we have seen this character. We don't see Alice again, who is an old lady. I presume it's her, it's his mother, um, or or or, or some elderly relative. But that's it. She's only yeah. in that for the purpose of delivering that line. And it's great because you could, you know, literally could have the guy walking through and someone saying, oh, as a former retired CIA director, mm. surely you would have something mm. better to do with your time. Yeah, exactly. You don't need yeah. that. You just need to know what he's, he's kind of a crotchety old man, which is yeah. how he is through the, through the brief scenes he's in. Um, and it's brilliant that way. Um, 
And he's also he's, he's quite a thoughtful man too. He won't just say, I'm tired of that dog licking its bum. He will go in and, and very precisely define <laughs> what is bothering him so much. And again, so that, and that's just, again, that's Brian Cox. Again, Samuel Jackson is in every single line. Oh, yeah, line at, at, every uh, single line, yeah. I mean, uh, and when you when you first see Samuel L. Jackson um, as Mitch Hennessy as well, it's like a setup, isn't it, where he's like a private detective and he's... Yeah. he's um, He's got, he's got, uh, he's got this. Um, he's, I don't know what it is. He's probably not bribing, but he's, he's, he's put this, this gentleman in a situation where he's sleeping with what he thinks is a, who he thinks is a prostitute, but is actually Mitch Hennessy's um, kind of partner. Yeah. And um, there's a, there's a whole. There's a, there's a whole stream of expletives that happen, which is hilarious, which I won't go into for the uh, parental guidance <laughs> dating. But there is, there is one point where he, I think he says something like, um, I can see that you're not a wealthy man. Um, <laughs> because the, the, the camera pans to his assistant putting her clothes back on. I can see from your choices you're not a wealthy man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the thing is, and she, she, it's a subtle look that she gives Samuel L. Jackson as well, just, yeah. as if to say, oh, shut up, you bastard. Because <laughs> um, he does this all the time. But it's that kind of thing that you think, all right, well, we know then that Mitch Hennessy is a bit of a player. He's quick He's quick with his tongue. He knows what he's doing. He's, you know, he, he's, he's a chancer, uh, but he, he's, he knows what he's doing. And I think that's really good as well. Because again, all you needed to know in that scene is that Mitch Hennessy has set this up. Well, you, you don't even need to know that. All you need to know is that he, I guess, is well, he's a private a, eye, a, a private eye, like, who's who's been investigating Samantha. That's his introduction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like I say, his assistant too. Again, I forget now, but she has three scenes where she basically relays mm. information. But you're right. In that, you're given a lot of information about her relationship with Mitch, um, Mr. Yeah. Trin. Yeah. Um, to Trin, you know that she's basically she's she's used to his ways and is not putting up with it. Um, but she's basically you know a bit of a grifter like he is, and they're in this together and. It's, it's, has, but they've got a mutual respect for each other as well, doesn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, there's no point. She's like, oh my god, how can you treat me like this? They're both scamming the guy together, and they're, um, yeah, yeah. And she, she managed one who managed to unpick the the mysteries of, of Charlie Baltimore's past, which starts the whole adventure off. And it's, yeah, it's it's not not a line is wasted. But yeah, um, to get to keep on with Mitch Hennessy, I think Samuel Jackson has, has said previously is one of his favourite characters to play, and yeah. you can tell why because it's, um. Like say, it's, it's, it's the script to die for, and it's the lines yeah. to deliver as well. He's like he gets to, to to shoot out a lot of a lot of good lines. I don't well, think he has a, a dull line in it. No, and there's there's three things. It's a script to die for. He gets pretty much all of the good. I mean, the film is full of good lines, but of the best lines, he gets all of them. Yeah. And only I think Samuel L. Jackson could deliver them to reach their peak. Yeah, they get the they're, they're lines for Samuel L. Jackson, aren't they? Yeah, there's a scene when they just had a scuffle with uh, with um, yeah, with Brian Cox, and they were escaping the car. And um, again, Samantha Kane is trying to work out what the mystery is. He goes, she goes, "Are you thinking what I'm thinking?" He goes, "I hope not. I'm thinking how much my balls hurt." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's another scene where um, Charlie Bolt, the Charlie Baltimore character, is is, is uh, attacked in in a, a street, uh, like a little side street, and. Um, she she's got you know guns against her and everything and and, and Mitch Hennessy turns up a little bit late and he goes uh, uh, um, he, he puts the gun to the head and goes this what does he say this is no ham and rye yeah what is it no ham and rye this is no ham on rye yeah that's it and he said sorry uh, sorry I was late I was trying to think up that ham on rye line <laughs> there's no need for that is there <laughs> there's no yeah. need for saying that to be self-referential in that way yeah but it's, it adds to it brilliantly yeah so there's a uh... Again, there's there's a lot of fun to be had with that, and again, so, so the script works very hard at being very good, and um, mm. 
that's in its character. I've come again. I've probably come to um, if I, I praise it enough. It's yeah, it's very entertaining. The characters are very strong. It looks good too. It's um, I've mentioned this is that it's quite stylized for an action film, for a by the numbers action film. Even then, you get shots like um, uh, well, for example, again when Mitch is is in the cellar um, and Charlie uh, is rescuing him, you don't see her kicking ass and killing all the guys. You just get his perspective and through the the sunlight through the the slats of his cellar, you get silhouettes disappearing and, and all going down. And it opens up with just uh. Um, Gina Davis's character toting a couple of guns, having rescued him. You uh, yeah. you get shots like again, cigarettes are, are lit and you know, closing. You get the the sight of the flame being drawn into the nicotine and burning up. You get vodka tonics being sloshed down directly over cut. There's lots of more interesting camera cuts in this than they, they would normally be anyway. In some of just to get you from A to B. What's the what's the phrase about pigs finding truffles? <laughs> Even a blind pig finds a truffle. <laughs> yeah, so and I don't, and that's not disparaging against the film because because I, I don't mean it to be. It's probably it's more disparaging against Rennie Harlan in the sense that I, I wonder whether that's through lack of judgment <laughs> in some respects um, and having a very good script that enables the directions. It kind of just do what it needs to do, and what it then needs to do is add a little bit of flair, which it does quite well. Yeah, I think again, if it's hard to track the the, uh, the chronology because it goes this immediately followed Cutthroat Island in its production, um, I think. Yes, they were released within a year of each other. Yeah, and because um, they, they wanted to make this movie first, but were contractually obliged to do Cutthroat Island first. Um, so I don't know if, they, if actually they'd found out you know, how bad Cutthroat Island was received after that, but maybe there was some kind of liberation, the sense of either, you know, I've made one big blockbuster, I can now have some fun with this one and do it the way I want to do it, yeah. or a case of my career's over because that tanked, I may as well yeah. have some fun with this because I can have do it some I want fun. It. And of course, Gina Davis and Benny Harlan were married at the time as well. They met, I think, on Cutthroat Island. So yeah, they oh, were, did they? Possibly, yeah. So they, they got together then. But again, the... the Divorced. Divorced three years later, Hugh, when Rennie Harlan fathered uh, the daughter of Gina Davis's personal assistant. I see. Well, there's some back, back information. There we go. I mean, that's for the uh, that's weekend at Crombie's after dark. That is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but again, one of the um, I think one of the the uh, Rennie Harlan, I think possibly Shane Black's aims was that the to have a female action hero in the lead to see you know, how that worked. And I guess we're looking at '96. I mean, this is pre-Matrix, yeah. it's pre-anything in the Marvel universe. It's pre-Tomb Raider and all that. I mean, what's it? It's what's also, it yeah. best? The, the it's, best. It's pre. It's pre. It's pre big blockbusters like The Mummy as well. Yeah, but I'm talking about a female action lead. You know, I see what you mean, yeah, yeah. Because the closest you get would be in things like Aliens, but that's not, I mean, though Ripley is obviously an action lead, she's not that kind of James Bond action lead, with, you, know, that, you know, looking cool and shooting bad guys all the time. So this, what, is, this, yeah, this is one. Right, yeah. It is quite an outlier. I was thinking, what's that film with Bridget Fonda? Is it Nikita? Nikita, um, Nikita about the same the time. Lip- yeah, about the same time. I mean, oh, it was not the Femme no, Nikita, was no. the French version. Yeah, yeah, but you know what I mean, though. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the, the American version of that with Gabriel Byrne in it as well. Yeah. Neither, neither, though, were particularly successful. Neither this nor um, yeah. the, the American version of the kid were particularly successful. Uh, I'm just trying to think of, I mean, okay, I suppose D- Demi Moore, we had G.I. Jane as, as one. That was a few years, well, that was just after this. I wouldn't, that, I mean, that's not really an action, although she is, she's, no. she's, being, she's countering the stereotypes, I suppose. Yeah. Although, interestingly, the link between um gi jane and the long kiss goodnight is is quite in is quite good because in both films there is a particular line where the female <laughs> protagonist that. says suck my dick i saw the minute i saw that i thought uh, james doesn't think i have some kind of fetish 
late nineties female protagonists uttering this that line phrase. that I have that I've sought out every movie where that is uttered, and I will make us watch it all. I think I think there are only two movies where that's uttered by female protagonists, and it's the two that we've seen this year. Not a lot of connection there. Um, so I think um, so yeah, those are my, those are my three big things about the movie. I think it's 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 it's. <laughs> The action scenes are great. The characters, for the most part, I'll come into the negatives after that. But um, and again, the the writing is strong and it's uh, it's quite nicely shot. It's a good movie, movie just to watch. Um, but what were your thoughts on this then? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't disagree with um, with anything you've said there. Actually, I, I think I think I think what you've said, I I, I uh, felt very strongly for the film as well. I think it's a really I think it's a really well made action film. Um, and I think that it is it's lifted by the absolutely firecracker of a script uh, delivered with consummate ease by Samuel L. Jackson. Um, but I was also and I guess, again Gina Davis to give her a due. We've probably not we've, we've dwelt a lot on the on the supporting actor, but as someone who has to carry the movie and not two through two characters as well. So not only the oh, yeah. the, the physicality because there's a lot of action scenes that she has to credibly pull off. Um, <laughs> Because a lot of well, the things she does are not her, you know, not there's not stunt work. She's she's actually having to be tied to a wheel and dropped in water. She's um there's even a scene when she's assembling this this hunting rifle, um and it's, it's done very quickly because this is uh, Charlie Baltimore's instincts coming back to us. So it's click 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 click, and as soon as I saw just the hands move, I thought, oh, they, they've they've hired someone who knows guns to assemble that, and then it pans up and it's Gina Davis doing it. So kudos to her, but she throws herself into the role in a huge way and does very well with it. Well, she really does, and I was about to say, delivered consummately by Samuel L. Jackson, but, I think, <laughs> well, <that's> but, <laughs> but we need to give more credit to Gina Davis. <laughs> well, you're just saying that now. My reflection on the film, fundamentally, is that um, it, it, I know that Samuel L. Jackson takes a lot of the plaudits here, but I think it is Gina Davis's film. I mean, she, she is the protagonist in it, and I think that as an action hero... She's fantastic. She's got the physicality required, a bit like uh, Demi Moore in, in judging, I guess, to a certain extent, although it's a slightly different film. But she's got the physicality. She's got the look to be an action hero. Yeah. And I, I'm not quite sure what I mean by that, but she fits the bill, I think. You know, she's tall, she's sleek, she's she's athletic. And I'm not, I don't want to sound creepy, but I mean, she's she was an Olympian athlete, right? So she looks like she could kick ass, yeah, so she looks like she did. But what I liked about it was that in the two halves of the film where she's Samantha Kane and then she's um, Charlie Baltimore, she plays both really well. If I'm honest, I think I prefer the Sam Kane version, but and that's because I, I, I quite like the the almost uh, kind of befuddled bemusement of the process rather than the confidence of Charlie Baltimore. But nevertheless, they're both really good and she plays them really well. And, you know, for me, and I, th- I think this and um, Cutthroat Island did for Gina Davis badly because this was yeah. her last leading role um, uh, in, in any film. Um, so not just action films, this was her last leading role in any film at all. And I think that's an absolute travesty because she's fantastic in this. Yeah. On the other hand, again, if you get, again, if Cutthroat Island would be a last movie, that would have been a tragedy. This was a good, it's a good one to end on. If, if your career has to end. I mean, she's got a good pedigree behind it. You know, things like Thelma and Louise, The Fly. Um, yeah, absolutely. What else what other ones are there? There's uh, oh, the Beetlejuice. Beetle Beetlejuice. Yeah, Beetlejuice. Yeah. 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 There's more movies than you and I have been in. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're right, though. It, it is a shame that, you know, in what could have been the start of, again, 
quite a good action career. Either again, the movies weren't there, the scripts were there, or Hollywood wasn't up for it. Um, yeah, because you're right. You you, you mentioned the Joe Jane. Again, I, I thought a lot of the movie, um, but it very seemed much like when you're watching it. Oh my, Demi Moore's really gone up for this. Like she's she's gone through training, she's transformed herself, she's gone for it. Whereas Gina yeah. Davis seems more effortless in that, and it's it's yeah. like you know, clearly like you know you have muscular actors like say Stallone or, or Schwarzenegger, and obviously they put a lot of work in. But when I say effortless, like that's the role they fit into. They are they are they are those big strong action movie roles, and it's the same with Gina Davis. It's like the way she portrays it, it's it's quite an easy step into her to do it. Again, partly I think of her height. Maybe just the way she carries herself. There's no sense of she's trying to 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 to, to try hard to look, you know, cool and tough and able to take on all comers. It, it just comes like that. She's a natural. She really is a natural. Which is uh, interesting because when you think about it, we just the films we've rattled off. The fly, she is not quite the damsel, but she's she's certainly not the she's the one getting picked on by the fly. Beetlejuice, even though she's one of the ghosts, she is in a sense being victimized there. Thelma and Louise, obviously it's a bit of a transformation, but she starts off being victimized. She doesn't yeah. really she didn't have a lot. She's not like for example, say Sigourney Weaver played a lot of tough characters, whether they were action tough or not. Um, yeah, but did. Gina Davis, you wouldn't have said, I need someone who's completely kick ass, who do I pick? You, you don't actually that's a good yeah that's a good point um and i suppose if anything if if if, if something comes of cutthroat island it at least afforded the opportunity for us to see gina davis as an action hero which she could then step up into the long kiss good night you know so so that that's fine I, I just wish i would have liked to have seen some sequels to this yeah. um you know followed the story of charlie baltimore and mitch hennessy a bit further down the line which is a shame really because you know that i think that would have been really good and i think i think given time they would have um they would have got certainly a bit of a cult following on that. I, I, I wanted to kind of just talk briefly about Rennie Harlan as well, because um, it, I mean, you know, I've seen a fair few of Rennie Harlan's films and, and he's, I think he's unspectacular. I, you know, maybe I'm being a bit harsh in the sense that I, I think about the films that he's made, Die Hard 2, which is a, a, a very decent sequel to an absolute classic, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're, on, you're, on, you're on a hiding to nothing with Die Hard 2. And I think it's not, <laughs> it's not a bad film, actually, as a, as a consequence of that. Cliffhanger, which I think I went to see at the cinema, and if my memory served me right, is good entertainment fodder, if nothing else, but still I, I, good entertainment yeah, fodder. I enjoyed Cliffhanger. Again, yes, I, 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 mean, would pick, I would pick Cliffhanger as another uh, Weekend of Crombies movie, because I think it's, it's been lost to time. But well, maybe, again, maybe, maybe, maybe next year. Maybe next year, because it's got John Lithgow in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, who would have a chance of John Lithgow? Annual John Lithgow Weekend at Crombie's film, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, and also, um, he's made a film called Deep Blue Sea, which I think is a bit underrated. It's not a great film, but it's certainly not terrible. So I, I, I wonder whether he's been he's been a bit unfairly maligned. I mean, since... since he also has Sam Jackson in it as well. Yes, it did, yeah, yeah. Be, be right. What you think would be a complete Sam Jackson thing, but spoiler alert, yeah, doesn't no, really turn isn't. out that way. No, no, it isn't. Um, and, and I wonder whether in, in, in The Long Kiss Goodnight, he's, he, he, the direction is, is really quite good. And I wonder whether it's because he has a script to work with. And I think otherwise, without that script, and I think he's got it to a certain extent in Cliffhanger, the John Lithgow villain has a very good script work in that as well. I wonder whether he's a bit lost otherwise. Um, but, and and, and when, I, when I say Rennie Harlan does need some credit here as well, it, it's because and you, you mentioned the concept of the practical effects. Um, but but I think that, I think that what, what is quite good at this is that the practical effects help establish the concept of the film of what I'm going to call high-octane high BS, basically, high-octane bullshit. So it's a film which has no, no sensible narrative or... Um, 
it has no sequiturs which you think are in any way, shape or form respectable. Um, it's, it's one nonsensical action sequence to another nonsensical action sequence. Um, but between those action sequences is a script which is a firecracker. So what Rennie Harding has to do is nail the action sequences, really. That's all he has to do. Yeah. And he does. Um, and so therefore, it works. And it's totally mindless. But he had to deliver the action sequences. And by God, he delivered the action sequences in this. I mean, the budget was excessive. The budget must have been extraordinary. It looks it looks like it, it cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I know it didn't, but um, it was a big budget film. You know, let's not let's not make a mistake there. It was, a, it was a big budget film. And as a consequence of that, I think, well, OK, in a big budget action film, particularly from the 90s, the trick is to get from action scene one to action scene two to action scene three. Rennie Harlan's job is to nail that. He does it. In between those action scenes, what you need is a script that engages you, that is hopefully in an action film, humorous, doesn't take itself too seriously and creates good chemistry between however many protagonists there are. And I think that even though there are only two main protagonists in this, you could include the Davis Mo David Moore's character, you could include um, the Brian Cox character. They all fit into the process. Even the much maligned Timothy, Timothy, who I absolutely <laughs> appreciate is not a particularly well-rounded villain, I actually don't mind his kind of blankness in this because it, 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 it he all, all he really needs to do is to ensure that Mitch Hennessy and um, Charlie Baltimore deliver the goods, right? I think all of those things work. So when I think about this, and you know, when I was when I was reeling some of these films off in my head, I thought, well, this is ridiculous. This can't be the case. But '90s action films that aren't science fiction films. So I'm not talking about Terminator 2. I'm not talking about The Matrix. I'm not talking about Alien 3 or any of the Alien films or anything like that. They're slightly different genres in my mind. They're big budget yes, but they're not that. They're not high octane BS. Okay, I'm talking about high octane bullshit films. I can think of one, maybe two that are better than this. Speed, I think, is a classic. That's that's almost the de facto '90s high octane BS film. Yeah potentially face off and that's it and that is really it con air the fugitive the rock cliffhangers you mentioned die hard 2 i can't think of others that would be better than this yeah it's um it's and it again it was not popular and i was, I was again, and, thinking yeah. on it. and yet I, it I, absolutely dived yeah and there's a couple of reasons for this again the the most obvious reason is it, it got sucked down in the wake of um cutthroat island you know partly you know the the critics and the the, the public maybe were or the critics and the press were ready to to, to write it off because it had just come off the back of a turkey with the same couple doing it yeah. um it may have been again um that yeah this was this was in the, towards the end of the 90s um so it was almost like maybe the people were tiring of that kind of that kind of you know movie it's um that that movie where you know that say, Die Hard was almost ten it was ten years or more since Die Hard had been made. Um, a lot of movies had followed that, but we're coming on to the beginning of The Matrix, which completely mm -hmm. revolutionised how action movies were, were shown or how were perceived and you know, copied after that. Almost the next spy thing to come on was Born, which again was a very different way of shooting yeah. movies. And it was like you can watch Longest Good Night now, twenty years or twenty years more onwards, and appreciate it for what it is on its own merits. 
but in the, the culture of its time, maybe it was just the the the, the trends had, had fallen against it and people just hadn't had enough of that type of movie. And so with a few other factors in on it, maybe the female lead they wouldn't didn't much care for, maybe the cut for reputation that the audience wouldn't have the studio audience wouldn't have backed um with, with advertising. And maybe just that kind of movie had been done. Maybe because you maybe. mentioned you mentioned things like face off and and, and speed, which are its contemporaries. They're much more, if you like, easier concepts to grasp. If someone says to you, there's a movie about a bus that can't stop, or yeah. there's a movie about a guy who switches faces with someone else. At least that, <laughs> well, that's locked into it. It's a film about a plane full of convicts. Yeah. I mean, it was The Longest Good Night. It's, again, it's like, well, it's, it's got someone in it, and they kind of get their memory back, and then they they have fun doing it and this kind of stuff. It's, it's less of a kind of an elevator pitch to it. Yeah, uh, uh, but maybe that's why I like it so much because it's a, it feels like it might be a little bit more sophisticated than those films yeah. that you've described. I mean, ostensibly, I suppose it's it's an amnesiac woman who finds an ident- her identity, but that doesn't really describe the film. Unlike um, the bus can't go slower than fifty miles an hour explosion. It's a bomb on a bus. You know what yeah. you know what film that is, right? That's it. You know what film that is. A man switches faces with someone. You know what? Well, maybe you don't. That's not a very well described. <laughs> you could probably describe it better than that. That could be in lots of different films. But um, yeah. yeah, convicts on a plane. That's Con Air. That's it. There's nothing else, is there? There's nothing else that could possibly be. Yeah. Um, but I quite like the fact that for the films, uh, the film isn't original, right? For all its unoriginality, it still nails what it sets out to do, and it sets it out to do it really well. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned Hugh that you wanted to describe some of the kind of the the, 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 the criticisms or nitpicking about the film. So yeah, please do. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, let's get the the easy one out of the way first. Is uh, our our main antagonist, the guy who Timothy, yeah, Timothy, the guy who is you know a match for for the for the protagonist both mentally and physically. You know he's he's. He's a good fighter than them. He's tougher than them. He's smarter than them. He's always got the numbers and the guns and the ruthlessness. He's outwitting them all. And yeah, I mean, the actor playing him, is it Craig Bierko? Uh I did have my notes done down, you know, discount Ben Affleck. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah, and he's very, again, he's awful. <laughs> it's basically because I think he was trying to play it, you know, you know eerily calm and super chilled, but it comes across as so detached um, that there's never you you'd never get any sense of real threat even though he's killing people you know ruthlessly and what have you it just it doesn't come across as as you know a good villain should and you know a good villain can elevate him you know, look at you know die hard is obviously the first example but again you've got speed as well anything or um connie rattle off the names and you remember who the villain was a good villain can elevate an action movie another level higher um just by doing the scenes they do and he plays it quite blandly again the actor didn't get much work after this so clearly i wasn't alone in thinking well, he's not that impressive in it um, what you'll find is that he focused very much on broadway Ah, uh, did he? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's he wasn't in any films anymore because he, he found uh, Hollywood to be uh, an empty and vacuous place. So he wanted to star in the latest Arthur Arthur Miller play. I was just saying, the, the latest Arthur Miller play. Knocking him out, Thursday. He was like 120 in, in the 90s. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there was. I mean, I think there's. I guess one good line actually is when uh, uh, Samantha Kane is is ripping up um all, his, all the far fly when she's you know tearing through the bad guys, and he gets this radio report saying, "Sir, she's got the bomb. I think I'm dying." He just goes, "Continue dying." 
Which the point of no one has ever given a wasted line, but most of the lines I don't think he does much with. And it's not the fact he was playing it cool and sinister, because I think I was thinking, you know, you put James Spader in this role and almost this time in his career, then it would be incredible because you'd have that kind of evil, cool, um, you know, that that very low level threat in there. And it would be quite fun. Uh, Almost um, because there's something about the the single bead of sweat which I think James Spader would be able to turn on immediately, <laughs> yeah. at request, which would make all the difference, right? Yeah. Just like, uh, you know, it, it, what that single bead of sweat that James Spader can produce so easily and so well <laughs> signifies a certain level of anger and stress that makes them unpredictable. Yeah. Um, but this probably plays into actually the the greater issues I have with the movie in terms of its structure. That one thing I always come back to is that... Yeah. Um, to start with, again, Timothy is the henchman of the, the main guy, Daedalus, the big bad guy. Um, yeah. So to have him as the main villain kind of throws your angle off because Daedalus, played by again, um, David Morse, is found out of nowhere. He, 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 as soon as he appears, um, that's you know he's not he's not preluded. They, he's appeared and then within like 10 minutes, he's done the torture thing and he's been killed by, by Char- yeah. Charlie uh, Baltimore. Um, so that's quick and we thought he was the main bad guy even though he wasn't appeared until the first hour and he's gone very quickly and then we're supposed to think that timothy has kind of taken over the position so that's a bit of a shunt especially actually as david morse is a much better villain so you're kind of hoping he he'd stick better, around yeah um, you almost want them to be swapped swapped around don't you because yeah in some respects the 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 trick uh that um samantha kane's stroke charlie Baltimore almost fell into was you know, engaged meant marriage, but actually was engaged the villain. And actually, you could see it more with Timothy because he's, yeah, he's a very bit more of a traditional, good conventionally yeah. good-looking. Whereas David, David Morse, I mean, I'm not saying David Morse isn't attractive, but who am I to say? But he's, but, um, <laughs> he, he's yes, he's more of a he's more of an uber villain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, so that, um, but that in terms of that kind of encapsulates the problem with the structure for me because, uh, again, Samantha Kane. Her, her mission is to kind of find her memory. And when that when the stakes are raised, when One-Eyed Jack appears with a shotgun in her door, is to find her memory to, to solve whatever problem has got people coming to kill her. And and so that's that's you know, that's kind of her arc. And it's ended as soon as she kills Daedalus. Like, she kills him, she escapes, and she knows who she is because she's been told everything by Brian Cox, and she's got away, and she's killed the guy mm-hmm. that she was meant to kill eight years ago. So that's it, but it's halfway through the movie. And had Timothy ever not come back and kidnapped her daughter and kind of kick-started the plot again? So in a sense, you have two jumps. You have the first hour when it's Samantha Kane finding her identity, get, finding her target, solving it, and get it and, and resolving it. And then you have the next jump where Samantha Kane has to resolve her identity with Charlie Baltimore, through the medium of the bad guys kidnapping her daughter and then another plot they have been working on that she's not invested in at all which was blowing up this place and blaming it on arabs and getting more money um and and yeah. that was so the bad guys are doing all the work and the protagonist isn't doing that much work and it's it's the thing with the movie is a great movie has you know the the protagonist's needs and wants coming together at the very end and and that gives you the catharsis and what Samantha Kane wants at the beginning is to find who she is and what she needs is nothing really actually she's quite happy with her life she's she even says she's quite relaxed with her life I guess she needs not to be hunted down but they're both resolved quite quickly so it's basically now you've emerged as the badass and you're ready to to happen and this happens either too soon or too late in the plot because you're right um the Samantha Kane the housewife um 
version of, of uh, Gina Davis is a very likable character. She's not just yeah. dithering um, and like, oh, oh no. my goodness, I'm so scared. Like, even when she's not getting flashbacks and beating bad guys up and breaking deer's necks, um, she's quite a good character. Like, there's a moment when, again, she's talking to, to Mitch as they're driving along, and Mitch sees a, a, a woman jogging along, kind of woo-woo's at the window, and she, like, just rips into him saying, did you get whiplash just then? And she's not, yeah. you know, not letting him up on the fact that he was, you know, a lech leering out the window. And it's quite fun. And, and things like that give him more than the character of, oh, I'm just so helpless and I'm waiting for Charlie Baltimore to take over and the fun to begin. Um, so when she disappears completely, when you know Charlie Baltimore dyes her hair and takes on this badass attitude, she is almost gone. You know, there are flashbacks when Charlie Baltimore gets a bit nicer and a bit more huggy, but you never really get Samantha Kane back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a bit of a shame because she was a good character. And I guess yeah, the Samantha K- Charlie Baltimore sorry, is presented very early on as a, a Mr. Hyde character. And we see her in a dream sequence, which I will say the CGI doesn't wear well when she's standing on a clifftop no. with lightning bolts. But Samantha Kane is looking yeah. at, her at Charlie Baltimore, who is hissing at her, saying, I'm Charlie, I'm coming back. You're going to love me. <laughs> and you think, oh, this is, this is a bit sinister. Is she the villain? And is it, you know, be the face of, you know, can, can Samantha stop this evil Charlie coming out? In fact, it's not that. It's like Charlie comes on and she's a lot more useful in a pinch. But it would have been nice had the two halves work together. And maybe Jim Davis didn't need to to cut her hair and, and look badass for to do all this badass stuff. Although again, the flip side of that is she does look very good and badass doing it. She looks like a proper super spy. As soon as she's got the peroxide bob and the leather jacket and the handgun, everything's like, yes, that's Charlie Baltimore, the spy. Um, so it, it was it more the fact watching it again with critical eye. Think, think, I'm enjoying this scene by scene by scene. But at the end, she's just defeating a, a bad guy plot that arrived at a convenient moment. She's not doing it because she has a desperate need to stop the government agency or to stop this town blowing up or anything. She's not even wanting to be a hero that much. She wants to get her suitcase of money and to get her daughter back. She's, she's not like, I must destroy this truck because it's the right thing to do. Her daughter's in the truck. That's why she's trying to stop it. I don't th- I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is I don't actually disagree with any of that, but I, I suppose I take umbrage but uh, one of the one you, you, you might need to kind of remind me how, how you said this but you said um a, a great movie needs to bring x and y together basically right to, to create a kind of make it bigger than the whole i'm not sure i agree um a great movie for me i mean there, there are there are many different types of great movies but a great movie for me if it entertains you um and you feel good whilst you watch a film. That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> I guess I've gone all over for Winfrey. But um, if you, a, 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 a film, a, a good film, a great film can simply be entertaining. And, it, and that's all it needs to be necessarily. And um, I quite like the fact that The Long Kiss Goodnight almost doesn't have grand structural pretensions. But what it does have is, I think a great script which pulls you from action scene to action scene. And if that is the purpose of the film, I'm not sure that the film has any great structural shakes about it necessarily. You can, you can break the film down structurally and, and um, unpick it very straightforwardly. And I think, I think what you've highlighted there is exactly that. And I, you know, I agree with everything you've said, but um, structurally the film isn't, what it's about, I don't think. You know, it, it's not about that. If anything, at the very least, the film is about the script, and on top of that, the film is about some absolutely incredible action sequences yeah. that are held together through the script. And it does those two things pretty flawlessly, I think. Structurally, if I was 
if I was concerned about the structure of the film, I'd be wanting to watch Die Hard, which structurally is a much better film, right? Yeah. Structurally, it's a much better film. But Die Hard doesn't have the... It's got a good script, don't yeah. get me wrong, and it's got good action. It's not got as good a script as this. So, you know, there's a balancing point in there. Yeah, I think... Um... See, let's take again. We do look at the Citizen Kane now of, of action movies. We look at Die Hard, um, and, and it, that is that is a number of action sequences tied together as well, of course. But the the difference yeah. is, John McClane's first instinct, first need in the uh, the beginning thing is to reunite with his wife, and every action sequence from that ups the goal and makes it harder to get to. So in the final one, when he's shooting Gruber or whatever, um, spoiler alert, yeah. uh, is is uh, <laughs> is. Uh, he gets it he achieves his goal after achieving each one and that's why you have the catharsis of not just he's won that action sequence but he's won the entire movie and you're right i don't get that from the longest night because even the moments um i guess when they're trying to push that like when uh she when i guess when charlie baltimore hugs her daughter and goes i love you for the because she she realized now of kind of reuniting the two which is kind of a, a little arc that goes on there doesn't happen in the climax of the movie it happens was the movie about to kick off into its final climax yeah. uh, and things like that again mitch when he um because mitch is very concerned on let's i just need to do one thing right in my life he has quite a good plot arc to be honest mitch does um it, it, it doesn't does, happen yeah. it doesn't happen at the, the culmination of the movie it happens close to the end of it and it's really yeah. cool when it happens but it's not quite there yet um but i would say you're right in terms of how things are set up it's wonderfully set up again and and the finale is incredible because you have these Everything is exactly where it should be for the finale to kick off. And there's the thing the, after a long fight with guys in the helicopter that she shot off, and he's come down on the Christmas lights, and there's this guy who's fallen out the helicopter burning, and he's upside down the lights. Yeah. And then you forget about him. You fight off. She has she fights with Timothy, the main guy, and then he gets kicked off the bridge and comes back again to shoot her. And at this final time, you know, she's utterly defeated. Um, she's getting gunned down, but she needs to get a gun. Where can she see? Yeah. Well, it's from the burning man who's hanging upside down on the Christmas lights, yeah. but I need to get level with the helicopter. I also need a gun. I also need these various things. And all she's got is a knife. So she cuts the, the lights, which sends her up on a pulley, which grabs the gun on her way up. So all these things. And then you have a, a vision of Gina Davis hanging in the midair with a machine gun, gunning down her enemy and winning the day. And to set all that up in a way that I didn't see coming because it was so... <clears throat> natural in its fight sequence yeah was really good yeah. normally you'll get you'll get a scene where let's say a handgun will come into play later on so you get a very obvious handgun get knocked out and the camera will linger on it and you think yeah. oh that handgun's gonna come in handy in a minute um it wasn't any of that it was like things are just happening so fast but when it does happen oh yeah that did happen and that thing happened yeah. that thing happened i get it now and that yeah. was and that, that's that yeah, way, I, it's, it's action catharsis it's action catharsis and, and when you take when you take Take that particular scene where Charlie Baltimore get, grabs the Christmas or well, the Christmas lights, I suppose, and uses the the dead the dead CIA agent as a fulcrum to a lever to pull herself up to get level with the helicopter to shoot um, into the helicopter to scream, die screaming, mother effers, and all this kind of stuff. Your initial reaction is woohoo, woo! But also your initial reaction is. That is utterly ridiculous. But it's, uh, you know, if you just saw that out, if you saw that out of context, if you just saw that scene, you, yeah. you'd think, "What is this? This is not stupid." Yeah. But when you go back a minute and then watch the lead up to that sequence, and everything's falling into place, but without you realizing it, that's high. That is high octane bullshit. Yeah. 
That's the and difference. I'll, and I'll tell you why it was ridiculous and awesome at the same time. Is um, <clears throat> There's, again, a film, it's one of the many Die Hard spin-offs, like Die Hard 5, which is when he's with his son in Russia, and it's awful. And there's one particular scene when, I guess, the building's blowing up, so John McClane and son have to leap out of the building, and they basically bounce down lots of scaffolding and etc. Mm. And it is so ridiculous that the minute it, you, it's through it, you think... God, this is stupid. And not even clearly this hasn't happened. They've just decided to do this. They've CGI'd it and whatever's happening and blah, blah, blah. And I'll wait to get to the next interesting bit. Um, But with this, you know, yes, somebody had to grab that rope and at least some stunt woman was was hanging on to it as they (laughs) shot it. Yeah. And and Julia Davis is hanging up there on something as she's shooting a gun. It's like there is a practicality to it that makes it feel very real. And also, though ridiculous, it's logical. You you can use yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's logical. Yeah, yeah. You can see you can see the the brain cells whirring, can't you? You yeah. can see that. It's like okay, so a car hasn't flipped twelve times in the air and flown off in the distance. Oh, well, fair enough. Yeah. But what's happened is something that's real and grounded and has been executed by stunt people. Good stunt work. Yeah. And yeah, that's that, that. There's not enough of that. I also wonder with. I mean, we're talking a bit about Die Hard here, which is which is interesting, but. I wonder whether there's something about the, you know, the, the law of diminishing returns and, and, and how and how the sequels to Die Hard have in some way tarnished the original film. So and, and, and whether whether the fact that I mean, I'd not seen The Monkey's Goodnight before Weekend of Comics anyway. So, you know, it probably didn't have this effect for me. But I wonder whether if there was a long kiss goodnight two, three, four, five, six, whether actually well, having watched all of those films and they're getting appreciably worse as you go down the series, yeah, yeah. that you kind of can't really watch the first one again without the knowledge of all of this to come. I would say the same is the case for um, the, as we, I mean, in a different genre for me anyway, it would be A Nightmare on Elm Street, where, you know, the, the first film's good, the second film's all right. Nightmare on Elm Street 8 is just utterly, it's just like, what is this shit? that I'm watching, yeah. excuse my French. Um, or, or, you know, maybe the other one might be something like, um, I mean, I would say the same for Mission Impossible, but actually that, that got really bad and got good again. Um, no, so I, they, well, the, the, the latest... No, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't seen it since like number three, so I can't judge, but it did, it did occur to me that, again, of uh, the contemporary news of uh, the certain star of Mission Impossible, oh, yeah, yeah. Stuff, saying, I carry the weight of the movies on my shoulders. And I'm thinking, yeah. is Mission Impossible 7 the hill you're ready to die on? It's like, yeah, okay. it's a bit much, isn't it? But, yeah, um, but so you know, and, and Long Kiss Goodnight doesn't have any sequels, and so for those for those who did watch it, and for those who for whom it holds a bit of a cult status, and it does hold a bit of a cult status, yeah. maybe that helps that it is it is unique in its own landscape, and, so, and there's yeah. nothing else to, to tarnish it. I think possibly. I think well, actually, you mentioned Die Hard. The sequels, are, the whole Die Hard franchise is worth of a conversation of itself it's fascinating because i don't believe any diehard sequel is written as a diehard sequel it's just a it's a regular tough guy fights bad guys movie that the studio just buys a script for and reskins it with john yeah, mccain in the middle yeah, that's why yeah. they are so divergent from each other i mean diehard is the closest you can get to it the idea of christmas and uh, terrorists yeah. but generally it's just we've got this script hey you could put john mcclain in that couldn't you and th- that's why they're so <laughs> tonally and varied. Yeah. quality is so varied over everything um and again, whereas you have something, say, like Terminator 2, which is specifically written to be a sequel to its predecessor, um, yeah. it goes a lot more than the sequels then went to hell as well, so who knows. But um, yeah, I mean, The Longest Gun is it, it's what I meant by uh, something that, that may not be um, popular in its, in its time. But if you'd like a good action movie and you were the kind of person who knew about this, you'd recommend it to someone saying, let's watch Longest Goodnight. What is it? You'll enjoy it. If you like a movie, you'll enjoy it. And mm, it's, it's a film so. you sort of confidently recommend because 
it's not something saying, oh, I'm, I'm sick of superhero movies. I'm sick of um, action movies now. I don't, you know, I've seen Die Hard 40. I don't want to see another one. It's like, yeah. no, you'll enjoy this. This is the kind of thing you'll enjoy. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. I think, yeah, I would, I would heartily recommend this to um, an action Die Hard. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes, if, if we're, are we through now with our, with our, uh, with our analysis? Because we can go to the I recommendations. Think we are, aren't we? Yeah, well, let's we go could, to the recommendations. Uh, with, the, with the prize, we can't recommend Die Hard because we've, we've said it a million times. I don't think, yeah, I don't think, yeah, this is a little kind Are there other films within this? And again, all I could think of, um, and this is probably related to the script, is it's Shane Black type movies. Um, mm. Again, he, there's things like The Last Boy Scout, he's quite his action hero. Things like, I guess, The Nice Guys is more on that subversive comedy side of, of the thing. Um, yeah. Again, and this again I'd, I'd have to rewatch them to get a sense of it but this to me feels like as, as samuel l jackson is at his most samuel l jackson in this movie maybe this is shane black's most shane black movie he, he got paid a record amount of money for a screenwriter to do this and um, so maybe like he put a lot of it into it um yeah. so, uh, maybe, so maybe this and I, I, I did read somewhere that he was really this is a script that he's really proud of as well and um was um at the point of kind of delivering the script was um, trying to be persuaded to make the main character uh, not female, but make it yeah. uh, based on a male character, and he was, you know, very adamant that, that this absolutely has to be a female character. And he actually said that's probably why it didn't do as well as it as it should have done, because actually, if you, he, he said if you replaced the Gina Davis character with anonymous male action hero, it probably would have been successful. I don't know how true that is, but it's possible, isn't it? I think it would have probably fallen into again those nineties um, movies, things like the Fifty First State, things that again were around Possibly. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't remember them now because they were just a, a, kind of that high octane watch this this i think makes it stand out more and maybe yeah. holds the test of time better but also but again the, what, um, what the point was though was that it, it absolutely might be totally forgettable but it would have made money yes <laughs> well he, he got paid anyways so who cares well, he so, got paid, yeah, he, so. i think he, he didn't write any blockbusters for a decade after this because i think no. yeah, um, he cited again various reasons why but uh it's also you know, maybe he's yeah he the script he's most proud of you can sense maybe in the in the in the, the the script itself that kind of pride of authorship that comes with say a tarantino movie where the the dialogue pops out as point, in, yeah. in a recognizable way as in like not that this dialogue has been written but this dialogue in a way that a play is is not written to be real it's written to be hyper real yeah the this is a bit like that isn't it yeah no one is just spontaneously witty or, or, <laughs> no, uh, or no. on the ball as as these uh, you know uh, 36 podcasts have shown it's impossible to be this clever <laughs> witty <laughs> <laughs> um, no you're right but and, and actually uh, the, <coughs> the tarantino uh example and comparison is good because I, th- I think when 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 samuel l jackson is at his best it's when he's working with a script that plays up to his strengths and his strengths is, is one of his I mean, he's got many strengths but one of his key strengths is the the patter that he has, the 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 the, the brilliant word smithery, the brilliant kind of um, humorous take, and, and Tarantino delivers scripts that that Samuel L. Jackson reads brilliantly, right? And I think that's why they work well together. A Tarantino film with Samuel L. Jackson in it is almost guaranteed to be a brilliant film, I think. Um, and uh, you know, maybe the same could be said for. Um, Shane Black and and and, and um, Samuel L. Jackson as well. I, I was going to recommend a, a couple of films actually. One of which I've already mentioned, which is Face Face Off, which is a kind of like a a, a similar type 
about it's a very different tonal film don't get me wrong um it's in no it, it's ridiculous but it doesn't have the same kind of humorous kind of concepts with it as well but it, it, it's a good film and it's it, it's entertaining about that kind of trying on different identities i think if you wanted something dare i say a little bit more cerebral than the long kiss goodnight although i do think it is cl- more clever than perhaps we're giving it credit for um something about amnesiacs that that's that's very cerebral i, I might recommend a, a, an interesting double bill with um the long kiss goodnight and memento um, the uh, Christopher Nolan film, which is about the you know the the the, the uh, Mike from Neighbours character who wakes up every day not being able <laughs> Mike to remember from Neighbors. not being able to remember who he was the day before, so he writes little notes on himself and tattoos himself until he finds Guy out, etc. Et Guy Pierce, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, they're very very different films. Don't get me wrong, but if you if you look for something about memory loss, one film does it one very distinctive way, the other film does it another very distinctive way. So there's quite an interesting dichotomy there. I had a few in my head, but I've forgotten them now. So, uh, ironically, <laughs> so, oh, ironically. a blow to the head from a stray deer will recall it to me, but I can't think of it now. I think we have well and truly um, kissed um, goodnight very long. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, thought, I thought I was quite eloquent about all of this section of the podcast until that moment. There. <laughs> Ruined it. That was my that was my cutthroat island, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we've we, we've we've done and dusted with the long kiss good night. We so we'll go to now the scores, and then yeah. we will find out what the twenty twenty one awaits us. Uh, God help us all. <laughs> Ah, welcome, dear listener. And you have been um, fully immersed in The Long Kiss Goodnight. Um, We have had a deep dive into the themes of the film, but now it's the favourite part of the uh, podcast. Everyone uh, knows it's it's nearly the end. It's the point at which we go through the scores on the doors and we reveal what January will bring us with regards to um, Weekend at Crombie's 2021. So... um, it befits Hugh as the chooser of the film to go first. Hugh, what would you give the la- the long kiss goodnight? Well, as as these conversations do, they 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 do sway the score. Again, I go into went to this with one idea of it, and it came out almost with another. I'd say not quite. I'm probably still landing on the score I thought it would be, but mm. it, it almost pushed me into a five star Crombie because as it stands <laughs> on its own. It's very good. It's like, do you like action movies? You'd really enjoy this one. So as, as in its own merit of action movie. But again, the, 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 the flaws I've pointed out in what I think is the structure and indeed the villain doesn't quite outmatch what I think the strengths are in the dialogue and the, the main protagonist. And indeed, just the fun it has in the explosions. It's a, a four floating Crombie head film for me. Very good. Very good. Um, yeah, well, I um, I... I think I, I've given a little indication of, of, of the fact that I like the film. I do, I do. I think it's a really, really good film. I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed it. I like, I like uh, the um, Gina Davis uh, character. I think, I think Gina Davis is brilliant in this film. I think she's matched by Samuel L. Jackson in a peak Samuel L. Jackson um, kind of uh, acting masterclass, um, coupled with a fantastic script. Uh, that that not even Remy Harlin can can diminish, <laughs> which is which is some achievement. I think I said earlier that um, I would I would maybe count Speed and perhaps Face Off as two better '90s action films. Um, I can't think of any more. Um, 
and perhaps surprisingly, as such, I'm going to give it five disembodied Crombie heads. Wow. I watched the film and I absolutely loved it, notwithstanding the terrible villain and some of the structural issues you point for. I didn't care. I thought it was great. It was, it was, it was, it was the best two hours I've spent in many a week. Do you know what? I am, I am, I am thrilled that I've recommended a film that you've received so well and privately yeah. aghast that I've blown my best chance to get a 10 star from the head of my recommendation. Because <laughs> uh, all I should do is give it a five. But honestly, I had to be honest with myself and to the, our dear listeners, I couldn't have gone against my feelings, but I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. I, I again, really liked the film. It's a, it was, I'm glad it held up to my memory. Yeah. Um, and well, it's, it's, it's a good, yeah, have a beer and watch this movie. Oh, it absolutely is. It's the first five star Hugh, Hugh film from me yeah so five first five star Hugh film from me um absolutely uh I, I you know i wouldn't i wouldn't have begrudged it 10 disappointed comedies but i can understand why you would give it four and certainly if you compare it to the citizen kane of action films die hard <laughs> it perhaps isn't quite as it perhaps isn't quite as good as die hard but i think die hard's a slightly different feeling film yeah. um even within the pantheon of fantastic action films i think die hard stands slightly alone um, it so again, what, what it doesn't have actually in Die Hard is banter of this quality. No, you, it doesn't. You, you, have, you have John McClane with the, with the villain, but really you don't have the Samuel L. Jackson, um, Gina Davis patter that you have going on, or indeed random characters who come in, like um, um, Brian Cox, who just, yeah, just comes on and steals a scene by reading just one or two words. Yeah, there you go. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with my score. I mean, I did think, I did think when I first put it on and the first couple of minutes or so, I thought, this is what is this what is this that he was made me watch and as i say it was the point it, it it wasn't really a slow burn but but within about 10 or 15 minutes i was well up for it and the point at which she threw a child across her garden into the treehouse yeah Indeed. i wasn't that wasn't uh, honestly at that point i was like this is going to be five stars i didn't really matter what happens now <laughs> this is going to be five stars <laughs> ritualistic animal slaughter at still five stars <laughs> So right. then, um, so our next recording, of course, will not be the no. It'll be our Christmas review show when Christmas we uh, we look back on the year that was. Um, which or the sure, year that wasn't, perhaps. Or the year that wasn't, yes. <laughs> the year that time forgot. Um, but nonetheless, we'll be looking at the review and, uh, and seeing how we did and how how badly I've scored against the films that you picked. <laughs> Although this has probably bumped my average up a lot. <laughs> I think so, yeah. I wonder I if you've had, had a nine-star one before. Have you had a nine-star film before? Well, I don't know if, how you were too late to hear. I gave it a whopping big five stars. <laughs> did. I gave it two. <laughs> <laughs> That's our biggest divergence, that is. <laughs> okay, clearly that wasn't a near one thing then. Okay, so it was, it was, uh, it was, this was, it was the closest I ever came. I I will ever come, actually. I'm, I'll, I'll put my, my hat on those nine stars. But yes, we'll have our Christmas show um, yep. held as tradition. Um, we'll have our New Year's Eve show held as the, the clink of glasses uh, held. Um, though, again, we, we can no longer maintain the edifice that the party is going on downstairs because it is, of course, just us alone in our houses as it has been all year. <laughs> and thank God. For that. <laughs> but, uh, but after that recording we are going to watch a new film for 2021 so james what we'll be seeing in this new year of promise with yeah volume four episode one who'd have thought we'd be doing this for four years yeah, episode 37 blimey o'reilly um so for episode 37 um of weekend at crombies i will be choosing strange days oh strange days I think I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. 
There we go. I've never seen it either. Marvellous. So we're both becoming cold to strange days. Not sure how I feel about starting 2021 with a movie called Strange Days, but I'm <laughs> getting <laughs> Uh, very good. Well, um, without further, uh, um, oh, I messed that up. That's all right. I end up normally. We'll uh, with that. We'll wish you uh, again. A... <coughs> no, I've messed it up. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness! This is the episode that never ends. I wish you a very long, and very pleasant <laughs> good night. You got, you got to start that again. Oh, it'll go in the edit. I wish you, I'm not going to keep this in. I'm going to wish you a very pleasant and long kiss. Good night for Weekend at Crombies. Good evening, all. Weekend at Crombies. I'm just clinging on with, with, with nothing but hope and duct tape to my feet. <laughs>